Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Welcome to Trinity. Great to see you all. We don't know one another. My name is Ashley Matthews. I'm the education pastor here at Trinity, which means that I have the great privilege and honor of teaching our classes here and stewarding our theological life together. So I'm going to make a sort of plug before we get into the Bible. We're going to, um, speaking of the Bible, start a Bible basics class in October on Thursday nights. So if you have been um, itching to jump in uh, onto a study opportunity, either because you're a new uh, believer or a person just getting familiar with the Bible, or you've been reading it uh, for a very long time even, uh, either way, we're going to do our best to sort of meet you where you are and cover all of the essentials, the really basic things that we need to know in order to read our Bibles well. So I think there'll be something for everybody there, and we'd love to have you with us for that. If you're able to join us on Thursdays, myself, and I'll be joining, being joined by a couple of other really um, smarter than I am folks, people like Brennan Breed, who's a Bible scholar at, here in Atlanta, one of my favorites. He'll be here with us one night, and some other voices. And so if you would like to do that, you can sign up online if you're interested. We would love to see you there. And speaking of the Bible, we will be in Luke chapter 14. It's a tough one, and if I didn't know better, I would feel sure that Chris planned his retreat for this weekend just to dodge it. (laughs) It isn't true. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. We'll read and then we'll pray. Luke writes, Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost? to see whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So, therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we bless you and we do thank you for the gift of your word. We ask you now, Holy Spirit, to do what we cannot do, to close the gap that stands between us and the words of Jesus. All the things, Lord, that make hearing and receiving and learning from a passage like this so hard. Lord, all those things you know and you see, including, Lord, the deep down internal things. And so it's those things, Lord, that we offer up to you. We ask you to take authority over them. All that separates us, Lord, that would keep us from you, Jesus, we ask you to take from us. Give us the grace, Lord, to put our lives in front of you and hear from you, to see Jesus. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. 
So for the last several weeks, uh, since Pentecost, really, in June, we've been talking about here at Trinity what it means to be the church. So for several weeks, we looked at what we called the work of the church, and then throughout the month of August, we uh, looked together in 1 Corinthians at what we call the love of the church. And this week, we're going to be shifting gears for the next several, talking about, as Brad mentioned, what we're calling uh, the treasure of the church. We'll be back in the lectionary, back in Luke's gospel. And all of these stories that we're going to be looking at together have something to do with what we're made or meant to value as the people of God. Um, what is our treasure? Because that determines, in effect, how we spend ourselves, what we give ourselves to. And where we draw our resources from. What is, the question we'll be asking, the treasure of the church? And how do we understand that? How do we live from it? How do we apply it? And I I think that actually that question is a pretty good question to have in the front of our minds going into this passage, that maybe Jesus was, though not exactly, getting at something um, relevant or pertaining to exactly that question. What is the treasure of the disciple? What does he, she really value? How do they spend themselves? Uh, So the sort of context for the story is that Jesus is traveling on his way to Jerusalem. At this point, he is headed there. He is one-track mind. Luke 9 tells us that Jesus set his face like flint, which is a sort of prophetic and poetic way of saying Jesus was determined now to go to Jerusalem. And as he gets closer and closer to the cross, what you notice in Luke's gospel and others is that Jesus becomes sort of intensely um, more prophetic or more urgent. He acts and sounds more and more like a prophet from the Old Testament than um, maybe the Jesus of the earlier gospels. Something's happening, in other words. And this has attracted a large crowd of people. As Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem, people gather in large numbers to listen to him teach. And these were people who were, by and large, curious bystanders. They were not yet committed disciples, people who were kind of on the fence, trying to decide, you know, what to do with this prophet-sounding Jesus man, you know, and what he says and what do we make of him. And here's what's interesting to me. Uh, Jesus directs this particular teaching to these people, to this large crowd of, by and large, curious bystanders. And what's interesting about that is that um, this is not exactly a sales pitch for discipleship. Jesus does not proceed to outline all of the perks of being a disciple uh, to this large crowd, which is interesting because that's probably exactly what I would have done, you know, if there was this large crowd of people who would come to here, I would, you know, put my selling shoes on. Well, let me tell you all the reasons you should get in on this. And it's not what Jesus does. Um, One might argue that he kind of does the opposite. And that's interesting to me. Jesus does not say, for example, if you would follow me, you will be guaranteed a happier, richer, more successful life. If you follow me, you will become a wiser, deeper, more spiritual you. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't say that, especially because I expect him to as a person living in this world, in our culture, which is largely committed to exactly that kind of idea. All of us, many of us anyway, looking for a fix for myself. How do I become a sort of newer and better and more improved version of me? We're sort of obsessed with that idea of self-help and self-improvement. And every podcast we're listening to, we're like, yeah, maybe this is the one, you know. 
that's got some nugget or two that I can not only use to make me better, but also sound smarter, you know, and that's just our culture fuels on this. And here's the reason that I bring this up, because there may be a number of you, in fact, in this room who are here because you are hoping to get yourself together. You would very much like to become a better version of you. And here's what I want to say to you. Praise God. Uh, God knows that's why I'm here in part. That's what the church has been for me. It's who Jesus has been for me. I am a better version of myself because of him and who he is in this life of discipleship. But here's what I want to say to you additionally. Jesus would give you that, but he would give you more than that, actually. Jesus wants to give you something that you can treasure that is outside of yourself, to which you can aim your life, something that draws you out of yourself and as a sort of byproduct makes you wiser and deeper and kinder, more faithful, more gracious. But to pursue those things as an end of themselves is to kind of miss the point. There is a kind of discipleship. It's what makes me nervous sometimes when I hear it talked about as if the end game of discipleship, the goal is a newer, better, even more Christ-like me. That is in part, I hope, that's what Jesus hopes will happen, yes. But is that actually the treasure? Is that actually the ultimate goal? Because discipleship for Jesus did not end with me at the end of it. The discipleship that Jesus is called to ends with something else, is aimed at something else. What is it? Because that thing is the treasure of the church. So what Jesus says to these people in order to make sure that they don't misunderstand or confuse is to clarify where he's going and what it takes to get there. And so he says two statements, um, hard to hear. I want to unpack sort of both of them. The first thing he says is this, whoever does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even life itself cannot be my disciple. If that sounds jarring to you, That is because it's supposed to. It's meant to sound jarring. Jesus has gone into sort of full-on prophet mode, using sort of full-on traditional Old Testament-style prophet speak. His language is intentionally, even stylistically, hyperbolic or dramatic in order to underscore and emphasize his point, which is this. And prepare yourselves. I'm about to say the words Greco-Roman and talk about the culture and the context for a second. And here's what I feel like happens every time we do that. People just sort of like go into a zone until it's over. And then we perk back up. So that's your cue. Don't leave me. In the Greco-Roman world, the world that Jesus lived in, the nuclear family that you belonged to, was a primary source of economic and social stability, a sort of bedrock, an engine for how you generated reputation, how you held on to reputation, accumulated wealth, held on to wealth. And for certain classes of people, it literally paid to belong to a family and to step outside of that family and all the responsibilities, all the obligations that came with being a part of that family was to put yourself and Rome, in turn, in a vulnerable place. It was to mess with the foundations of the culture and to potentially 
risk, your own prestige, power, and sense of security. What Jesus noticed that was happening is that Roman society was using, under the guise of loyalty and honor, we're using this as a kind of weapon to keep people in bondage, enslaved, so to speak, to their families, this network of responsibilities, a particular identity. And for certain people, it was impossible to imagine a life outside of that. It was always to be the primary allegiance. And it was far too costly to imagine anything outside of that. And what Jesus is saying is, is it costly, though? And does it actually pay? Because that all depends on how you understand treasure, how you understand payment, and how you understand cost. Because Jesus is suggesting that actually perhaps living that way, so dependent upon social and economic security that you spend your whole life trying to hold on to it and secure it for yourself, is actually far more costly, at least spiritually speaking, than stepping outside of it, being free from it. And that's a really interesting point. Because Jesus is not, of course, encouraging people to abandon or cultivate hateful feelings for their families. What he's saying, though, is that where he's going requires spiritual resources in your gut, in your soul, that if you do not have those, you simply won't make it. All the power, status, security that the world can provide you will not get you to and through the cross. That's what Jesus is saying. It requires a different kind of asset. And that was true then, and that is true now. That's the kind of asset or resource that the church is meant to function on. Money, power, status, buildings, all the things that we feel sometimes like we need so much in order to be who we're made to be. Jesus is saying here, no, 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 no. Actually, the resource that you cannot live without has nothing to do with those things at all. It comes from somewhere else, the thing you need the most. And this isn't just about money or power or status. I think we can be driven towards allegiance and maybe even unhealthy sense of allegiance to family for different reasons. Some of us have sought and are seeking a kind of security and payoff from being attached to families and relationships, extended relationships, that the Lord may want to put his finger on and ask why. And have we thought about what it might be costing us. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, Chris talked about how in certain parts of the church, we have almost idolized the idea of marriage and family. That we have perhaps sometimes inadvertently communicated that the highest goal and hope of a Christian life is that you would become married and be a part of a family and, you know, have the career that is the passion of your soul. And if you happen to land in a very lovely suburb or neighborhood, you know, with all that comes with that, then thanks be to God, you've made it. And I just, we just need to say together, in full view of Jesus, that that is not to be found in the New Testament. 
is the highest hope or goal or aim or treasure of the Christian life. It is not and it cannot be. I have been married for 14 years. I love him very much. I have two beautiful little boys. I'm so thankful for them. And I have a responsibility to love and cherish them. Y'all, but they cannot be the treasure of my soul. They literally cannot fund my soul in the way that will get me to where I am called to go by God to be who I am made to be. And here's why. For two reasons. One, when I look to them for ultimate meaning and purpose, try to find satisfaction from them that way, I actually end up making sort of idols out of them. I use them for my own purposes. That's what idolatry is. It takes a created thing that was made by God for a certain purpose and it uses it for a different thing to meet your own needs. That's idolatry. And we can do that with any number of things, even each other. And then things get distorted in the process. And I don't feel as fulfilled as I think I should be fulfilling given how much I'm investing. Why am I so tired and overwhelmed? I am giving so much of myself to these things. And the sad truth is that they can't because they were not made to meet me in those ways. What my soul needs in order to get where it's meant to go has to be fueled, has to be resourced from somewhere else, from something else. From some other treasure. One of the most helpful things I've heard during this particular season of my life is that I am a disciple first. And I say that to you with a great amount of fear and trembling and, you know, hearing all the ways in which I know that that is probably not true based on my lived life. But every day I wake up and say, Lord Jesus, I am a disciple first. I am a mother, I am a wife, I am a pastor, I am a friend, I am a sister, I am a daughter, I am all these good things. But Jesus, I am a disciple first. And if I can remember that, then here's what happens. I suddenly have access to the the resources that I need in order to do the thing as Jesus has called me to do it. Not as the world around me or the culture around me tells me to do it. I feel free. feel more liberated. And rather than telling myself over and over how tired and overworked and all of the things that I am, it's like replacing the narrative, reframing it. I may be those things, but the truest thing about who I am is that I belong to Jesus. My treasure is with him. How do we find it? Where is it? It's a question. So Jesus says, secondly, whoever does not carry the cross cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross cannot be my disciple. I think that it's likely that a a number of us, if not most of us in this room, when we hear that verse, we think something like this. Or at least this has been true of me for most of my life. 
Whoever does not carry the cross cannot be my disciple. So that means I need to imagine the worst thing that could possibly happen. And then if I'm still willing to follow Jesus, if that thing happens, then I can do it. Then I'm a Christian. So just go ahead and I'll imagine the worst thing that could happen. And if that thing were to happen to me, I, and I could endure it, I could get through it and still have faith, then I can be a Christian. If I can get sober, imagine never having another drink, then I can do it. If I can imagine being celibate for the rest of my life, well, then I can do it. If I can imagine never looking at porn again, well, then I could be a Christian. If I could imagine giving up all my money and going and being poor, well, then I could be a Christian. And when we say it that way, I just, I don't, that doesn't sound like Jesus to me. That sounds a lot like an enemy who would very much hope that you never decide to become a Christian. Because what's in front of you is the worst thing, the cost. And here's why I don't think that's helpful or even true. is because to be a disciple means that we are people who are following Jesus where he is going. It meant it then, it means it now. And where Jesus was going then for James and Peter and John was to Jerusalem and to the cross, yes. On some level, they knew that. Wherever they were going was going to be tough. But here's what's so important to me to remember, is that for Jesus, the cross was not the ultimate destination. It was not the prize. It was not the treasure. Not the cross. It was what would happen on the other side of the cross. It was getting to the cross so that he could get through it and over it. So the Bible describes the treasure of Jesus this way. Ephesians 2 Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And when God raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, with Christ Jesus, in order in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's the gospel. That is the treasure of the heart of God. If you are someone who is here who would read a passage like this and think to yourself, well, I already know I don't have what it takes to build the tower. I already know I am not going to win the war. Then you need to hear me say you are exactly the person for whom this gospel exists. Because God knows that you can't. And in his goodness, his grace, and his love of you, he has provided a way for you to come forward and to meet him. And he celebrates that and rejoices over it. By grace you have been saved. And when we keep that gospel as the treasure of our lives and our hearts, when I keep it in front of me and know that that's true, that that's who God is, then 
I can endure whatever hard thing is in front of me. I can go to and through the cross, whatever your version of that might be. But if your vision of the treasure, of the, of the heart of who God is and his love for you is weakened or anemic or you can't see it at all, then all you'll see is the impossibility of the cost. And that never changed anybody. Even those of us who say, oh yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Even if that worst thing happened, I'm just still with Jesus. You know, come what may. And I, I hope you feel that way. But it is very likely that there are a number of us who say that we feel that way and we can't actually. And if anything to me, this is permission to admit that it's true. That I have to have a robust enough vision of Jesus' gospel in order to be a disciple. To fund this life with God or I'm going to run out. So that's the treasure and the trick is figuring out how do I, with all, given all these other allegiances, all these other priorities, keep that in front of me? Well, here's how Jesus did it, at least in part. I want to say this in closing. Jesus went to the cross, as you all know. Spoiler alert, if you didn't know, Jesus goes to the cross. He gets to the cross, and like the one thing that we all know that Jesus said from the cross, what did Jesus say from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And theologians and scholars have for centuries rightly noted and pointed out that Jesus was quoting from that psalm on purpose because of the degree of spiritual agony and despair that he felt. That is true. I also think it's true, however, that Jesus began that particular psalm because he also knew how it ends. Which we often do not. So I'm going to read it to you. Psalm 22. It wasn't just the beginning that Jesus had in mind. It was the end, and the end goes like this. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. That's you. That's me. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, that's you, that's me, he has done it. Those are the last words of that psalm. A psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, ends with that faithful, hopeful claim. He has done it. Jesus began that psalm knowing that the spirit of God within him would finish it. Hoping that if he started singing the first part, somebody else would start singing the last part. For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12 says, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy set before him, this joy, the church, this gospel. And if in my darkest, hardest place, I can acknowledge where I am and also look forward to where God is taking me, that's how we get through. That's how we get there. That's our gospel. May it be so, Jesus.
Let's stand together if we can. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.